I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am here with Adria Kitchens. I'm so excited. Uh, she is the program manager of the Equitable Dinners uh, uh, organization that I have been attending these events in Atlanta um, for several months and that they've been going on a little bit long, actually since, since last year, I, I believe. And um, we'll talk a little bit about that. And she's a senior certified feminine power coach and um, just all sorts of wonderful. And Adria, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What an honor to join you and with all of the things that you're doing, like tapping, and I need to know that. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I've, yes. uh, we'll, talk, we'll get to your career transition a little bit. I've definitely had one of my own. Um, so, so, yeah, so Adria is just up to all sorts of, all sorts of good trouble, um, uh, do, uh, very active in lots of different ways. And I think maybe we can start with the equitable dinners since that's what, um, since that what brought, what brought me to you. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, that program, how you got to be involved in it and, and what, it's, what its goal is and what it's doing for our, for our community? Sure, sure. So equitable dinners grew out of, um, a program that we launched last year actually called the Cater Dinners. And we did that in partnership with uh, several organizations. So there were, um, there were, there were local members or residents in Decatur who were seeing issues in their school uh, around um, disproportionate suspensions of black students. Mm. And they wanted to do something about that. And so, um, at the time, I was with an organization called One Small Change, uh, who was founded by Dr. Dietra Hawkins. And uh, so Dr. Hawkins and Ariel Fristo, who is the founder and artistic director for Out of Hand Theater, uh, and Claire Schick Snyder, who is a Decatur resident, were all at an event that Ariel was putting on where they have shows and homes. And they started, uh, Claire started sharing about what was happening. And uh, uh, as they were sitting there, um, Dietra shared about her work, uh, her, her doctoral work around the Chicago dinner model, which brings people together to talk about race and racism. And so out of that, um, like in six months, we created this live event where we brought together 1,200 people uh, and over 120 different dinners uh, using art, uh, to really launch our conversation to talk about race and racism. Uh, we did that August 25th of last year, and that was pretty amazing uh, to bring all those people together on one night. And uh, after that, we were um, still passionate about what we do. And we were also getting calls from different communities asking how could they do this in their community. Uh, and so we stayed together and we created equitable dinners. And we were, uh, our plan was to have live dinners uh, within the city of Atlanta, 500 dinners, 5,000 people this year. And we were uh, really on track to start that process. And then COVID, <laughs> uh, you know, happened. 
right? And so what we recognize is that we still wanted to connect people uh, around issues, especially, you know, with the, ele the election coming up and with um, the things that we were seeing, you know, in the world. And we wanted to continue to connect people. And so we looked at how we could pivot and go online and we created uh, our Lift Every Voice series that brings people together every third Sunday to talk about race and racism, really the foundation of race equity. And on top of that, you know, looking at health, housing, voting, uh, food. Uh, so through different lenses, especially all the lenses that COVID, I think really amplified oh, during yeah. this time of the inequities that exist. It's, and it's such a, for anyone, uh, are people allowed to join who are not in Atlanta or is this still oh, yes. Atlanta people? Okay. Well, that's the beauty of being virtual is yeah. people can join from all over. And we've had people from all over Georgia join us, all over the nation actually, and from about nine different countries, other no countries way. outside of the U.S., oh. which is pretty exciting. So yes, they can join uh, every third Sunday, 5 to 7 p.m., uh, they can go to our website at equitabledinners.com and, and uh, register. And we're excited to have Rashad Robinson uh, this month, uh, president of Color of Change. And we'll have that launched with a play by Paris Creighton. So we're really excited about that. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll put I'll put the um, the website in the show notes for sure. And and for anyone yeah. watching who has not been a part of these events, they're they're stunning. I mean, they're they're wonderful. There's a there's always a um a, like a a, a one-person play. Is it always a one-person mm -hmm. play? On always a one-person play. Mm -hmm. um, out of Hand Theater is this incredible theater that does um, that does pieces of art in people's home, like the, the performance in people's home. Or that's my, been my experience with it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one of their ways of doing it. And so there's there's a a, a piece, a, a performance that they're always just like so just jaw-droppingly yeah. amazing um, and yeah. powerful. And then there's a, a speaker. Who is always also incredible and I always learn so much from these events and then there's like breakout rooms so it's a yes. wonderful event and like you're saying I mean you, you I'm so impressed with how you all have pivoted these events from the live events which were also incredible and also had performance and yeah. and discussions but um I think you've pivoted so well and it's it's something that I know lots of other folks in the community that I know also enjoy and it's a very diverse group as well which is hard. It to, is. How do you it how do you all balance that? Because there's so many like white people trying to learn about their own stuff, uh, <laughs> which can be very challenging. From what I understand, for black people to be around watching them clamor through it, um, how do you all balance that, keeping it a space where everyone is learning and growing? Well, you know, we invite everyone to the space, and 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 really, it's people who are of like mind, people who really want to have a conversation, right? Yeah. And so one of the <laughs> One of the things that we've enjoyed is having pretty diverse um, participants, group of participants. So about 60% white, 40% black, and uh, other people of color as well. Uh, and I think probably one of the favorite things I see is the age range that we have, all the way from 18 to like 70 plus and pretty, oh, wow. pretty nice um, uh, across the board of having those people present. And I think it's just that we put it out, we put the invitation out there that you are welcome to come and, and just have a facilitated conversation around race and racism. And people love the art. And, you know, adding the speaker really is yeah, yeah. like this new piece that we added in this virtual environment. So we really want people to get grounded in the story and have the experience and then get grounded in the facts, right? And, and use that to really guide the conversation so that people 
um, are, are opened up to what's actually happening and then they can feel some sense of authenticity and, and step into some vulnerability around around their own race, you know, their own experiences around race and racism or their own complicity. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's so perfectly done. I'm, I just am, I love it. Um, Thank you. So the next one is what's the date? It is September 20th. Okay. September 5 to 7 p.m. Awesome. Eastern. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you, you, you there was, there was, stuff that came before, but I was reading through your bio and you used to work at Yerkes. Mm-hmm. You're a scientist in your background. So how do you go, how did you go from that work into the work that you're doing now? Wow. Yes. Long time ago. That was, you know, when I, when I was in college, I was very focused on being, you know, a doctor. That was what I said. Mm-hmm. I was going to pre-med, right? So um, what ended up happening is I ended up in research. <laughs> So, um, you know, I, I graduated from Johns Hopkins and I did research there. And then I came to Yerkes uh, as an intern. I started off as an intern when I was in college during the summers because I grew up in Atlanta. So I would intern there and then um, wonderfully offered a position. Uh, and so that's where I began my life. And so for about nine or 10 years, I was there working in neuroscience. And I think when I look back, you know, uh, one of the things we worked on when I was there was at the time, you know, was this um, big story around what people thought was crack, you know, what they call crack baby syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I look back on that and seeing how race played into that, like the language of how we were um, uh, talking about black mothers, mm. right? Uh, and using those things to take their children away from them, which I was not aware of at the time, right? Because I was, a 22-year-old student, um, but that's what we worked, we, you know, that's what we were looking at is uh, really some groundbreaking work around how um, how other things were actually called, causing the issues that they were seeing in the babies that were born that had more to do with fetal alcohol syndrome or other things that the uh, cocaine was being cut with that were causing the problems they were seeing in the children. And so at the time, you know, we were probably, there were some other, um, there were some other research facilities who were coming out with that same kind of information that, you know, they had, you know, you know, so much focused on this whole crack baby idea, uh, but it was the other issues that were were causing the problems. Um, Not that cocaine is something that people should be out taking, you know, but it was the idea that they were actually stigmatizing women uh, around this. Uh, And so to be a part of that, you know, when I look back, I was like, wow, I never would have thought of being a part of that at the time and how that would come back to play a role. Um, When I worked with Dr. Hawkins, she did a lot of work in recovery. And so I had the pleasure of being able to uh, start to, you know, look at the peer movement that has happened, you know, uh, and so that whole kind of movement around how we, how we language things and how we talk to people and how we help people recover, like all of that, you know, kind of that transition um, didn't happen all at once, right? Like I mm-hmm. went through a lot of different steps to get there, but, you know, when I look back on my time at Yerkes, it came back to play a role uh, in my life later. Uh, in my work, um, in my work in this field. So, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Did you, did you 
picture yourself as an activist, like growing up? Is that something you always, did you, were you, did you grow up around activists or did you have other people role models or, cause it's, 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 it's such a beautiful thing to be doing with, with your life. Um, I'm just wondering um, if that was like some, you know, like in the cards for you in some way or, or not something you expected? That's a good question. So no, I don't think I did, right? I, I didn't necessarily picture myself as an activist, although I was always doing something, you know, I was always mm -hmm. speaking up at school and, um, you know, like they were tarring the roof of our building and I was, you know, speaking up about how that shouldn't happen when we were all in school. And I remember doing that at 15 or 16. And uh, so I think I always... It was always there. I just wouldn't have called it activism at the time because yeah. I probably didn't know <laughs> what that really meant, you know, in high school at the time. Uh, so I think for for who I am, you know, it was always there. And I remember, um, I remember there was a man in my church, and I remember telling him that uh, I was, you know, I was planning on being a doctor because I grew up in a really, I grew up in Eastlake, and oh, uh, that's a, a church. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I. I grew up at um, Eastlake United Methodist Church, and uh, we had a really kind of family atmosphere when I grew up in church. And so everybody raised you in the church. And I remember him telling me, he's, I said, I want to be a doctor. He's like, really? I didn't really see that. I saw you speaking to all these people. <laughs> and that's what he told me. But I, rem like, I remember that statement. I didn't really know what to do with it, you know, at, at you know, being in high school. He's like, are you sure that's what you're supposed to be? But, you know, now though, and I... Um, when I think about that, I remember I remember him sharing that with me before he passed. Um, that he saw something different, and so he saw something different in me. And um, and you know, and my parents were always supportive of whatever I wanted to do. So um, I knew they they thought I would be doing something that I would be speaking out about something, even if I was a doctor, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. I would still be doing that. Um, I wonder, because I've, I've spoken with a lot of black women who wanted to be doctors and had mm -hmm. advisors in undergrad tell them that they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I don't know if that had anything to do, you know, like that, like, it, and it's racist and it, it's, it was never said explicitly, but it was mm -hmm. kind of, it was implied with this advice they were getting from the old white man um, mm -hmm. telling them, oh, you should, you shouldn't do that. You, sh you, you know, that's, that's not something you'll be able to do. Did you experience any of that? And in your training? I don't think I experienced that specifically. You know, I, um, I ended up in research because I, you know, as you're looking for internships in college, mm -hmm. um, you know, you look for these places, you never know where you're going to really end up. And I didn't, at the time I was, I was really focused on, um, somewhere in pediatrics, um, you know, having, I, I think I'd done an internship at the Cap Medical and like the uh, the the unit that um, supports the little preemies, and oh, yeah. I really been impacted by that and the doctors and the nurses who at the time it was the Cap Medical. I think it's Emory DeCap right now, but um, I was really impacted by that. So I don't think I had anyone who was turning me away from it. It's just that I ended up in research and I was really fascinated by kind of how you, you know, like the under, the underpinnings of all the theories that were used, yeah. that you use actually in the medical field, like, oh, this is where this comes from. Like it was, it was so fascinating for me to figure out, like people determine what they do based on all of these research studies that we do 
like this actually means something. This is yeah, why people say, yeah. oh, well, the study says we can go back and do this. And so that became, I think, maybe more important to me that I recognized um, how you can really impact, um, impact medicine and impact everything that we do is based on, you know, this, how we follow our scientific thought and how we get from hypothesis to theory. And so that, I think that probably was more of a, more of an influence. And of course, being at Johns Hopkins, a lot of researchers, a lot of doctors too at Johns Hopkins, but you know, big research institution. So I think it just, yeah, uh, if you're going to do research, that's like the place place to be, right? Yeah. And medicine is its own world of hurt. So I'm actually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I always tell people if there's anything else that you want to do, like do that. If you love medicine and you're thing you still want to do it even though lots of doctors have told you not to do it then uh you know in in a non in a non-racial context people are yeah you know it's just like it's a tough it's a tough world so i'm glad that that your 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 decision to not do that was was out of passion for something else which is it was what's funny is my best friend so my best friend and i we were both going to be doctors and she wanted to go into research she ended up becoming the mb Mm. And then I went into, I went into research, you know, and, um, well, I just, I just thought that was funny because we ended up doing the things, the other thing the other person wanted to do. (laughs) How does she like it? Is she still practicing? Oh, she's still practicing. Yeah. She's in, um, in Noonan, Georgia. So she's still practicing. Yes. Um, so that's great. So it's, it's, it's funny because it seems like two very, uh, different career paths, but the way you what, what it sounds like what drew you to the, the research is, is the impact that it has on the way people live their lives, which is, which is what you're impacting now. So I think yeah, that should be yeah. the parallel. And I was um, a numbers person. So it was, you know, it's all numbers when you start analyzing data. <laughs> yeah. True. True. Yeah. Um, how did you get into coaching? So you're a senior certified feminine power coach and I don't know yeah. a lot about that, but I'm yeah. a huge fan of coaching. Um, and I'd love to know a little bit more about that and, and do you, does that intersect with, with your activism work? How do you, how, how does that fit in with all the rest of the work that you do? Sure. So, you know, I actually left something out of my, you know, when you were asking me kind of how I got to where I am. So, you know, shifting from like neuroscience into where I am now, I mean, I, I became a mother. So I have three beautiful round children and, and I took myself out of the workforce. Right. So I stayed I, I I was probably more of an at-home mother um, and then said the best way I could do that is to have my own business. So I started, you know, my own businesses during that time so I could really uh, support my kids in the best way. Uh, and so I always had a passion and a drive to do that. Uh, and then when I, what I recognized that there have been some experiences in my life that have been traumatic, although I had wonderful, wonderful parents. Um, so those experiences really came to the forefront as, you know, we led into, what was it around two, um, 2007, 2008, we went into the financial crisis. Mm. Uh, and at the time I was in commercial real estate and, um, lost everything in real estate because the market crashed. Uh, and so here I was with three children. I was, you know, I was divorced by that time, uh, with, with the three kids and raising them and, um, there, all of these things came to like this perfect storm of, okay, Adria is not well. Mm. <laughs> Adria needs to figure out what's going on with her. And 
that's when I found um, uh, Dr. Claire Zamet, uh, and she's out in uh, California. And at the time, she was still working on her PhD. But uh, this program, Feminine Power, uh, and it was really um, what I what drew me to it was like I was like, okay, so I know I'm depressed. I know I have these things happening in my mind and my spirit, and I can't get myself you know, back together. And I, I was looking for an answer. And so that's what came. And it was such a breath of fresh air and so transforming for me, you know, to really um, find a process and uh, other women who were feeling the same thing uh, to, to find a way to really, um, to empower me to, for my, you know, to create my own healing. Mm -hmm. Right. I didn't have to depend on anybody else to do that. Like, like from that process, it was, she was like, no, I'm going to give you the skills and capacities to do this yourself. Right. And that was like groundbreaking. I was like, oh, so I don't have to like go outside of myself to get healed. Right. Yeah. I can just do this. I can actually gain the skills to do this myself. Uh, And so that's what happened. And I started off with her and um, it was so transforming for me that I said that I want to be able to support other women in the same way. And so um, I went on to her as she was creating programming, like her, what she would call her feminine power mastery program, where you really be, um, you know, you're inside of this structure where you really learn how to master your own psychology and your own energy, like what that really means to be able to navigate life, right? It's not to take yourself out of life. It's like, how do I navigate life and the challenges and the opportunities that come with that? And, um, and then I went on to her certification programs and became a certified coach and uh, have the honor now of being able to, you know, having been able to come uh, particip- start participating several years ago as one of her senior coaches uh, in her programming and support the other women who are, who are in her programming, who are taking on um, her professional certification trainings and coaching facilitation and leadership. So, um, I mean, that was a transformational experience for me. It's an amazing process. Yeah, it sounds like it. So is it energy work as well? You mentioned energy a couple of times. Is it? Well, um, I, I would say it's energy work, right? <laughs> I think it's all energy work, but probably not as specifically as people might define energy work or okay. in the field, okay. right? But um, when we look at, um, it's really how do I, you know, it's creating from, a more feminine, uh, feminine energy. So I guess you mm-hmm. would say that, um, and not to say female, male, but like the difference between our masculine energies, right. Right, which is more systems processes, those things, and that feminine, more creative, um, energy, more relational. So relational energies that you would think about how you relate to yourself, how you relate to the universe, God, life, how you relate to other people as being the power um, with which you work from. And, and based on a foundation, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a appreciative inquiry. So it's, it's really a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. But not, so, not enough and that's a more about. relational kind of, uh, a business model, you know, a strengths based approach mm-hmm. of how, um, how you look at what's working. So like, at, it's like based on that foundation, if you were to be one of those little geeky people who read, reads people's dissertations, <laughs> 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 which I did. But uh, so in reading, it's like, 
you know, as I learned more about her and her work, it, I was going through the work like in a practical sense, but it was like learning. It was just like Yerkes, like why I ended up in research. I want to know like the underpinnings of how this actually works mm-hmm. uh, and, and looking at those models. So a, a more relational approach to, to how we, how we, um, how we use our power. So power being relational as opposed to power over power with. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've heard that a lot recently. Um, yeah. Uh, we're doing some work with some teachers in my meditation tradition on how to demystify the guru teacher power thing, um, <laughs> decolonize, yeah. decolonize the practice. So yes. uh, we've yes. been talking about that a lot as well. So it's, yes. it's cool to hear that coming up here as well. Um, how do you use that work? Do you use that work in anti-racist spaces as well? All the time, all the time, because I, um, you know, when I, when I came to work with Dr. Hawkins, um, you know, I had already been working with Dr. Zamet for many, many years. And um, I could see how I could use my, all the things I learned in facilitation and coaching and, and leadership in this arena, right? How do you create spaces for people to really be able to share authentically and vulnerably about what's coming up for them? And, um, and really having a passion for how I work, you know, how I really support other women of color because I had had this mm-hmm. transformational experience, right? How do I support women of color in healing our own internalized racism, internalized oppression um, through the processes that I learned through feminine power and through what I was learning, you know, inside of um, Dr. Hawkins's work on uh, race equity, like using all of those pieces. But I definitely use all of those skills. Uh, in what I do now, um, a lot of it mixed into my my facilitation work, especially. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about internalized racism and internalized oppression? Because I think it's something that a lot of white people don't they don't they're not aware of that that's a thing. Um, and, yeah. and realizing the systemic nature of racism, how it does affect everybody um, in 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 ways that we might not even think about yeah. we need people. So can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Because I think it's so important for white people to learn about it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know if I realized it until, you know, I started really getting into this work, the ways in which we all grow up in the same racist soup. Mm-hmm. Right. So all growing up in the same racist soup, we all all of our minds need to be decolonized. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so um, I'll tell you a story. So um in 2014, 2015, I went through this situation with my son where he was accused of this crime at school uh, and we had to go through the juvenile justice system. Mm. And we spent 10 months in DeKalb County juvenile justice. And, uh, you know, going to court, um, we actually proved he did not do this. We proved actually early on that he had not committed the crime and even the, the complainants admitted to, to lying on the stand. And the judge still wouldn't dismiss the case. Now, this is a black judge, black prosecutor. I mean, there were all sorts of, you know, hiding witness statements, all sorts of things that, you know, you know, not, you know, my attorney asking for witness statements, those witness statements not being made readily available because they weaken the case. Um, And so finally, after about 10 months, we were able to, the judge dismissed the case and then she held my son back because she wanted to tell him 
you know, well, I really wanted to send you to judge to jail today because I didn't like the way your hair was cut. And I, so I was sitting there thinking like, what, I, you know, I'm like, he has been, you know, here's the part of the mom who's like, he has been respectful every time he's been in here. We've had him in a tie, you know, you know, um, tie, uh, uh, dress shirt every time he's been in here. He has not spoken out. It's like all these things that I'm thinking should make him acceptable yeah. to the world. And here's this black judge telling him this. And, I'm, and it, you know, it was kind of in that moment that I just realized how devastating it, it is to be a black person in our criminal justice system. And every time I was in that courtroom, or every time we were in the court, in the building, uh, on Memorial Drive, everybody I saw uh, was alleged of alleged to have committed a crime was black or brown. Mm. I saw not one white face. Yeah. The only time I saw white faces um, was in traffic court. And I'm thinking, wow, in all of DeKalb County, are you telling me that the only people accused, only children accused of crimes happen to be black or brown. That seemed odd. Like that seemed really odd to me that nobody else right. was accused of committing a crime. And, and, you know, I share that story because that to me, that is like the clear example of internalized racism, how a system can look at a child, regardless of the color of the person uh, who's standing before them or sitting before them and still say, this and still like real be like intent on this black child needs to go to jail. Even though the complainants admitted on the stand that they they lied to the police, right. to their friends, to everybody, because she was up, you know, the young lady was upset that he had basically, as a 14-year-old kid, did you know, like dissed her and he didn't want to be with her at all. She wanted to, she created this story. And like none of that mattered. And so like that to me is like the biggest example of internalized racism that we as black people right. will look at people who look like us and still think the same way mm-hmm. as other people. You know, that, that's racism, right? Racism says, <laughs> says that regardless of the your color of your skin, like, oh, well, you are more prone to commit crimes. So I need to put you in jail. And um and so that for me, I think at that point, I was like, okay, so what do I do? Because I almost, I felt hopeless, really, right. you know, inside of that, right? That this entire system, I, I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, like I hadn't even recognized fully experience of my brother being a black man, right? And my father being a black man or, or all of his brothers who grew up as sharecroppers, right? Mm. You know, my dad grew up as a sharecropper. I am Molina, Georgia. And so it like all came like within that time frame, just came kind of crashing down. And I recognized, wow, the power of a system that would allow us to look at each other that way. Uh, and so that's, you know, internalized racism is that, right? Where we take on the beliefs of the dominant culture, mm-hmm. uh, those negative beliefs about ourselves, and we start to believe those. <laughs> and act out inside of them so um, that acting out can be acting out against others who look like us. Uh, And also taking on those negative connotations, you know, inside of racism, oh, well, you know, black people are lazy. Mm. Black people don't, you know, 
Um, they don't want better for themselves. They want to stay in poverty. Oh yeah, they always commit crimes. Like this is all they can do. Like those, like we take on those things as if they are ours and that's what somebody else is putting on us. Yeah. And and it's like, how do we start to release that? Say, like, wait a minute, no, that's not mine. <laughs> like that's what you're thinking. That doesn't make it true. Like just because you say that doesn't make it true, but there are ways in which we take all of that on, right? That tra that's trauma, right? To constantly be taking on the beliefs of other people, these negative beliefs about ourselves, and we take them on and say, yeah, you're right. That's that's who I am, and it's not who we are. Like we didn't we didn't enslave ourselves, right? We didn't tell right. ourselves all these negative things. Somebody else told us all these things. So um, hopefully yeah. that was a uh, no, that was so poignant. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's a, I mean, the story, it sounds like you're talking about 1950s and, and, and for me to even be surprised that that happened or for anyone right. listening to be surprised, your, your skin is, is probably white like mine. And that's, you know, that's, that's the reality that, that, that black people face. And, and it's very easy to not know that unless you ask and not to, yes not to um, understand what that experience is like because you don't have to experience. I, I yeah. share a story of um, I got pulled over in 2014 for using my phone. I was actually like trying, I was voice dictating something and mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. Like the cop went back to his car. I was so mad. I got out of my car. I was stretching. I was being super passive aggressive. This is 2014. This was like right when all the videos and police shootings were coming out and it was happening. Mm -hmm. And um, my little white self just didn't think about that at all. And the cop came over and I was like, Oh, I just need to tell you the background, but you know, it's just a funny story why I was voice recording. And he's like, Oh, are you, I was thinking of an idea for a book I wanted to write. He said, Oh, you're mm -hmm. a writer. I said, no, I'm a doctor. And he was like, you should have told me I don't ticket doctors. I mean, it was the most ridiculous. And then thinking about, it, would any of that interaction happened if right. I had been black? No, I, right. I mean, I wouldn't have done what I did. I wouldn't have said what I said. I wouldn't have been able to, yeah. and the cop would not have reacted that way. And so it's right. so, I think, thank you so much for sharing that story that yeah. this sounds like a very painful experience for you, but I think um, so helpful for, for people to understand not only the lived realities, but the, the mental trauma that yeah is caused by that internalized yeah. racism yeah how do you how do you help people get out of that how do you like i mean i guess well, not, don't give the, the secrets of your coaching sauce but, <laughs> but but i mean how does that is that is that it's i mean and, and it's I mean, i'm reading um stamp from the beginning and this whole idea mm -hmm. that black people are lazy i mean that was brought that was created to justify slavery in the 1600s so that's that's something that's been perpetuated and totally um uh apparent like i don't want to say a paradox that's not the right word but um like well at the same time enslaving people who more like an oxymoron very hard an oxymoron, thank you <laughs> right <laughs> then calling them lazy, yes, but you're yes. enslaving them because they're working harder and they are right. you know you think that they have a different pain threshold you know it's none of it ever made sense but it's still there generation after generation. So how, do you, how does one begin to heal from that? So, you know, part of that is why we do the dinners, right? Yeah. So, I, so that we can hear the stories and experiences of other people um, and, uh, and have that impact them in a way that just giving them the facts would not. 
Yeah. Right. Because it's not like people don't know racism is wrong or that it exists or that people are having um, adverse experiences in racism. Every, every, you know, it's been around for years. People know it. It's just that it hasn't changed anything. But people's stories, you know, really impact and change people. And that was one of the reasons that I loved um, Dr. Hawkins' work because it did give me hope. It was like, oh, you can share a story with someone and it can impact them. Um, and so, you know, especially in, in this work, right? And, and then I was able to see how I could bring in my feminine power work around how we connect, really connect back to ourselves, mm -hmm. right? So it was like in connecting back to myself and really seeing myself and um, the beauty and the, the warmth and the wonder of who I am. Right, that I was able to release all these other ideas that other people put on me about who I was not. Right, but it, it really, so it's it's really in being able to um, like really go deep within ourselves, right, and, and start to shift these out external, sometimes external and internal beliefs, right, that we hold mm -hmm. uh, and really have that deep connection that allows us to like push past that and say, you know what? That's not actually true. Like what's really true is that, um, you know, like I am here to contribute to the world and I do have something, I do work hard and I, right. And I, and I, and I have been this person who really stands up for other people. Um, and it's it, like, that's the process, you know, of, it's like a really amazing process of just recognizing that in yourself, which I think, we as black people in many ways we you know we haven't had the opportunity to do yeah that we've been in in so many ways stuck in stuck in survival mode you know we think because we see a lot of black people doing well that you know all black people are doing well and at the end of the day a lot of that is that we're the exceptions and that there are a lot of people who look like me who are um, unfortunately still in poverty around the world right you know in this country and around the world and that says something right so that you know you would think everything's okay and everything's actually not okay yeah right so and so, so far from okay yeah right so far from okay which which we as black people have to take on like i as a black person had to take that on like oh my god that's that's what i realized with my when i went through the situation with my son mm -hmm. i was like oh we're not okay like what what would have happened like it, it just we had the privilege of having to, he had the privilege sorry of having two parents who although divorced like the entire family came together to he and uh, my former husband uh we came together to make sure he had one of the best attorneys you know in this probably in, you know in the country but definitely in the state of georgia mm -hmm. uh represent him we had the money to be able to do that he had his family who were, I mean, his family was there at every, every hearing, right. his uncles and aunts were sitting in the, in the courtroom. And, you know, what's interesting is in that process, you know, the prosecution tried to make it look like it was a negative thing. Oh, they're just here to intimidate these people as opposed to look at all the support. You see how that gets turned around in right. racism. Oh yeah. Wow. Like, you know, like, oh, like, in any other situation, it would look like, you know, you're being supportive and he has his family around him where it gets turned around that, oh, they're here to intimidate. It's like, intimidate. <laughs> like, right. like the, he needs support in this in this courtroom. Mm -hmm. But um, 
I'm sorry, I forgot your question. No, it's it's. <laughs> I'm like, I, answered I, it. <laughs> I don't even know. Oh, I was asking how you you heal you heal that internal. Oh, how you heal that? Right? It, you know, I'm 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 loving everything you're saying. So, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your um your so so John Lewis, uh, yes. our, our congressman, passed and. There's this quote about good trouble that everyone has been quoting. It's like turned into, you know, it, it's, it's such a beautiful quote. Um, and I read a blog post of yours where you, you dissected it a little bit and analyzed it a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I love what you had to say. Oh, sure. So I think that's probably one of the gifts that has come out of my work uh, in Feminine Power is um, this, this, real, this idea of being able to hold paradox, right? Mm -hmm. So um, inside of systemic racism, right, it can be overwhelming because that's where I was when I was yeah. dealing with my son. It can be overwhelming. Um, but it's like, can we hold, you know, struggle and triumph at the same time? You know, the fact that we're in this really horrible system and really hope for something better mm -hmm. at the same time. Can we look at peace? I think because I was talking about the paradox of peace, right? Mm -hmm. At we think we look at peace as if nothing bad negative is happening there are no struggles and maybe that's not what peace really is right like you could still have peace and still have people protesting mm -hmm. right we assume that we're in the wrong place that we're not at this peaceful place because people are protesting and and i think one of the gifts that comes out of really being able to stand you know feminine power is about being able to hold these really big things all at the same time mm. Right, that's the difference, right? The inside of a masculine power system, um, there is no room for paradox, right? It's one way or it's, it's one way, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we build a house this way, right? There's yeah. systems and processes in place and this is how we do it. But inside of a feminine power structure, a power system, you can hold paradox. You can hold, you know, I think about having I have three beautiful children who are all grown now, but um you know, I think about birth, right? That inside of pain, there was something really glorious coming at the same mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And like, that's paradox, right? Like you hold all those things and those can, those can only be held inside of a space that really allows for um, you to stretch and move and not get everything right, be a little messy, yeah. <laughs> um, not be perfect. Everything doesn't have to be a straight line because it's not linear. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's that that's what I was really speaking to. Right. That. Um, for, so for me, like good trouble means it's like holding the paradox that you can have trouble and that can be good. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it doesn't have to be a negative connotation that we really should always be holding these tensions. And we always are. Right. And, and to be able to create the context for people that it's OK for those tensions to be present, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we can't get to where we need to go inside that. of that yeah. right it's like the butterfly right yeah. you know the caterpillar like goes all to mush <laughs> and it, i mean if i were the caterpillar i would think i i don't know i would be thinking oh my god what is happening <laughs> with my life like life is really not working out for me right now <laughs> but <laughs> when you go into this cocoon it doesn't seem like this is working but it's like at the end then we look at the the butterfly is being the most beautiful part of that, but the caterpillar and the butterfly were all in the same DNA. Yeah. Right. It was, that was the whole paradox at the same, they were all present at the same time, all of those, all of those things. 
and you still get to the beautiful butterfly that, that we call, you know, like beautiful and mean. I love that. I love that. That's so, it's so inspiring. And it's a very, you know, mindful, I don't know if you do mindfulness work explicitly, but that's such yeah. a like holding yeah. it all and having that be okay. And not necessarily, yes, making change. Yes. Trying yes. to make society better, but, yeah. but not, tr you know, not trying to micromanage or fix every little thing that's happening in yeah. the moment and seeing the beauty in that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Institute for Equity Activism? Yes, yes. So I'm really excited about that because that we just launched in July. And um, and that came out of really both my work with in Feminine Power and then my work with Dr. Hawkins was um, how do we really help people prepare to be um, even, you know, to really understand what activism is, to have the skills and the tools that they need to actually go into their communities and create good trouble, right? So um, as a part of Out of Hand Theater, uh, which I had to, you know, have the joy now of being a part of their team uh, starting this year, we looked at how can we really support the people who are coming through our equitable dinners and our facilitators with those skills and people who are really wanting to know what to do. So we created this institute to really ground them uh, in appreciative inquiry, right? Like how do we look at race, race equity as a strength-based approach so that we have something that we can move towards, uh, as well as really grounding them as ha in, in, grounding them in, excuse me, um, using arts, using the arts as a, um, an activator for getting people um, grounded and all on the same page in their experience. So, you know, the arts is the one place like we can come together without using words many times mm -hmm. that people can really uh, come into the space and have like this real emotional tie to what's happening and have an experience of it. And they don't have to, we don't have to wait for a story, someone to share a really compelling story because we, mm -hmm create one and um and so that was really the impetus behind creating the institute and so they they get grounded in um ai not artificial intelligence but appreciative inquiry and mm -hmm. and cultural competence so understanding is it's really even bigger than race right there there are all these other things although we want our our focus is definitely race equity right we feel like that's the foundation for everybody so we really ground them in race and then using the arts uh, to help to really support them and then taking them through some aspects of transformational facilitation. Like what it, not just teaching people, but really creating a container and space where people can have a transformation experience. Mm -hmm. And so they're in small groups as well. So they have a small group experience where they're creating a group project and they have to learn how to distribute their resources equitably how to look at what to do in their community equitably. How do we do that, you know, in groups? Cause that's what, you know, that's that relational power piece that comes mm -hmm. from, comes from my feminine power work. Like how do we really relate and collaborate with one another to have an even bigger impact than we could have by ourselves. That's amazing. So is that like, um, like a cohort go through it at the same time? Mm -hmm. How long is the mm -hmm. program? So it's over three months. They commit to one weekend a month, as well as they commit to being in a small group over 
over a two and a half month period where okay. they're um, working together to create a project uh, and distribute a small amount of money equitably. They can either invest in one project mm -hmm. or they can invest in all three and then they, they will come back together for uh, what we are, are calling like their capstone. So it's like a capstone project, right? Their capstone slam mm -hmm. where they will share out their projects uh, and, and share what they're doing in the community and, um, and hopefully be able to get some additional funding um, from, from what, for what they're doing. That's incredible. When does the next yeah. cohort start? Not that <laughs> I want to do this program. I get, oh, awesome. It started in July, so it's August, it's September now. So yes, yes. So we're looking at the next cohort starting in January. Okay. Um, so that will be the next cohort. We would love to, you know, obviously dealing with seasonal activities and being amid COVID, we thought that it may be best to to wait until January to start our next cohort. Sure. So our hope is within the next two cohorts that we have at least a hundred people um, within these next two cohorts. So we were, we were actually really honored that the, the Arthur Blank Foundation uh, sponsored our pilot, our pilot of our first cohort. So oh, wow. we're really excited about that. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. It sounds incredible. I'm so far. I'm so fascinated. So all these, all these um, links are going to be in the, um, in the show notes, but because um, you, you gave several of these websites. Um, so that's great. So I'll, I'm going to check that out for my own self, but for anyone listening, <laughs> you can check it out as well. Um, yeah. So we're, we're about out of time. Um, yeah. I don't know how, I mean, I know how it went so quickly because you have so many wonderful things to share, but um, how do people find you, work with you, um, all, all the things? What, what are some websites and social media handles that you want people to take note of? Sure. So um, I would love for people to join our Equitable Dinners Facebook community, because whether you've been to a dinner or not, we are all about courageous dialogue. So we want people to join there and um, we provide resources. There's so many links and things that are provided in there and events. And we'd love people to join there so we can continue and launch different conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can find us on Facebook at on our Equitable Dinners page and in our group our equitable dinners group, our equitable dinners community for courageous dialogue. Uh, and then our Institute for Equity Activism, that's Institute for Equity Activism.com. And, uh, and then my coaching is at coachadria.com. And awesome. you're welcome to come to any of those websites and or find me. I'm on Twitter as well as you, <laughs> as you well I know. found you. Yes. Yes. And that's where I saw yeah. all your, your great blog posts. So, um, so yeah, definitely, um, follow Adria and, and, and check out all these spaces and register for the next event as well for the, um, equitable dinners, which is going to be on the 20th. So, yes, um, Adria, thank you so much for, for, um, agreeing to speak with me. We had a very brief interaction mm -hmm. after the last, um, event and I was like, hey, <laughs> come on my podcast. And you were like, Thank okay, you. strange lady, sure. So I really appreciate that. Um it was such a lovely conversation. And I've yeah. um as always have learned so much. Um and it went in places that I I don't know if we were expecting to go, but that's the beauty of these conversations and yeah. and in general conversations with somebody you don't even know that much and yes. getting to hear their their perspective and and what has shaped and formed them. So um, thank you again. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your, I guess this is Labor Day weekend, Labor Day yeah. Monday. So have a yeah. wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. And I look forward to hearing even more about your work.
Um, there's lots that can be done with um, healing racism inside of your other work, your meditation and tapping. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, thanks so much, Adria. Thank you.